What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casual and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Uh. Check it out now. Uh. No doubt now. Uh. February 25th, 2019, the Beating the Book podcast is Gil Alexander. Post-Super Bowl, pre-March Madness. I got some podcast episodes for you, including... One on the Major League Baseball season preview, all kinds of thoughts from Paul Spore at Fangraphs. We'll get into some season wins and some props. That's coming up. But first today, this one is precipitated by a long-form ESPN.com piece that was put out last week about the Tim Donahue NBA betting scandal from, well, a decade ago. And it was hailed by folks on the network as groundbreaking, pathbreaking, and it occurs to me that it ought to be time to dust off my old interview with Sean Patrick Griffin. This is a classic. Sean Patrick Griffin, the author of the book Gaming the Game, the definitive account and investigation of the Tim Donahue betting scandal from so many years ago. This is a classic interview with Sean, one of my favorite podcasts ever. In case you did not hear it so many years ago, it is here in full form right now for your enjoyment. A window to what is not only the biggest scandal in modern-day sports history when it comes to betting, but also a reminder of how this could very well happen in some form at any time. Maybe not in the NBA, but in any other kind of sport. I don't think it's that far-fetched. Sean Patrick Griffin and the makings of the Tim Donahue NBA betting scandal with all the betting characters involved right here on the Beating the Book podcast. Enjoy. He's an associate professor of criminal justice at Penn State Abington, a Ph.D. with a research area in organized crime, a former Philadelphia police officer, and an author of several books, which is why we have him here, most notably the author of Gaming the Game, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen, Sean Patrick Griffin. Thanks so much for being on the show, Sean. Thanks for having me, Go, Sean, before we get into the book, your background that I just ran through right there obviously jibes quite nicely with this story, and I'm sure it was a natural for you to be drawn to this subject matter in the first place, but was there a specific circumstance or event that directly precipitated you writing this? Uh, actually, there was. 
I I was actually out promoting my last book. And let me step back. When when the scandal hit in summer of '07, like all sports fans, I was following the news, and I thought I had a good grasp on the the nature of the NBA betting scandal. And then by March of '08, I'm out promoting my last book, and I ran into somebody who knew somebody who knew the pro gambler Jimmy Batista, who was one of the three you know the three conspirators in the NBA betting scandal. And he asked me if I'd be interested in speaking with him. And the truth was, at that time, if you had interviewed me, I would have told you I was torn on whether to even meet with Jimmy Batista because, you know, the thing had been through the criminal justice system, and we all thought we knew the story. But I thought, okay, fine, you know, I don't know that there's a story to tell, but I'll be interested. And the real reason I wanted to meet with Batista actually wasn't the NBA betting scandal. It was because I knew from what little I had read and what from this person had told me that Batista had been in the betting world for decades and was connected to some of the biggest people in the industry. And I thought at that point, and I'm now convinced that it's true, that no one had ever really interviewed the big-time sharps in the business. As you mentioned, my background is organized crime research. Well, typically that means that you're researching, if you're talking about gambling, you're researching low-level bookmakers, you know, the guys in the corner tap room or the pub or whatever. And that's interesting, but, but everyone's covered that. No one ever really covered the people who bet for a living, you know, millions of dollars every day, filtering money through Asia, Europe, wherever. So I figured if I could if I could get access to Batista, if he was credible and willing to talk about that, in addition to talking about the NBA betting scandal, uh, then it would be worth my while. Um, and as I've said numerous times, I literally met with Batista for half of an hour, and I knew immediately, oh my goodness, public has no clue, Gold no clue about the, uh, the NBA betting scandal, let alone this massive, massive underworld of big-time sports gambling. So that's how that's how this all began back in 08. What a gold mine you realized that you had happened upon. So it occurs to me, Sean, I should probably give some context here before I ask numerous questions, and I do have many of them, both macro and micro, but let's give some context. While everyone in the media, as you allude to there, was focused on Tim Donahue, and understandably so, since the NBA portion of the saga is obviously mammoth, and we had a first-hand account from Donahue in 2009, facts be damned, by the way, but you had already done your research by that time, and you had decided you were going to write about this much bigger story of Jimmy Baba the Sheep Batista. In fact, the first half of the book doesn't even touch on the NBA scandal, but describes the experiences that formed Batista. Why don't we start there to set the stage? How did he become this amazingly powerful figure in the gambling universe? You know, I'm glad you asked me that question. I don't know how many dozens of interviews I've done, and that part of the book is ignored. And to somebody like me, I find that probably the more fascinating part of the story. And in fact, by the way, that's the part of the story that Hollywood's interested in. Batista's uh, start in betting world is actually interesting. He, he was involved in all sorts of shady things as a kid, as a teenager. Nothing crazy criminal, but he was always a hustler. So you'll see in the book that there are discussions about him making fake driver's licenses back when uh, you know he was trying to help his buddies out in high school get driver's licenses so they can go drink. Things like that. Well, he takes an arrest for drinking and driving uh, while he's in high school. And that's also an occasion where his, his scam of underage licenses uh, being manipulated is also exposed. As a result of those arrests, he loses his, driver, loses his driver's license. And his father is adamant that even though he's lost his driver's license and can't drive to work, he's got to get a new job. And if that means walking to work, well, darn it, you're going to walk to work. As luck would have it, the only place that, to which he could walk was a local restaurant. 
And so he went there to ask for a job as a waiter. Well, he gets a job as a waiter at this local restaurant, and it turns out that the restaurant is owned by the area's bookmaking big shot. So the guy who's running the restaurant hires Batista as a waiter. Batista doesn't mind waiting tables, but he's totally blown away by the constant traffic coming in and out of the restaurant to meet with this bookmaker. And there's a line in Gaming the Game that, that really tells the story about why Batista found bookmaking and betting so fascinating and so important. He liked the idea that this restaurant owner slash bookmaker had so many people who wanted to be next to him and owed him so many things. And what he realized very early on was, obviously, the bookmakers make good money. Everyone loses. People very rarely win for continuous you know, amounts of time. And people typically can't pay back their debts to bookmakers. And what he saw was bookmakers not only get money, but they wind up getting favors. He loved the idea that everybody knew this restaurant owner, and this restaurant owner wouldn't have to pay for any number of services. So whether it was catering for this event, paying a tab for this, whatever, everyone owed him so much money that he wound up getting all sorts of things taken care of. And that was just the way this guy lived his life, and Batista was totally fascinated by that. And so he starts getting groomed. He, this guy was also a big partier, as was Batista at that point in time, so... This old-school bookmaker takes Batista under his wing, and that's how he gets tapped into the whole idea of, wow, I can have the legitimate guys of working at a restaurant, but I can actually be involved in bookmaking. And it looks great, and it's obviously a great way to launder money if you were interested in that sort of thing. So anyway, that's how he got started. And it's just a regular, low-level bookmaker. Isn't that amazing how life circumstances just sort of guide you? The fact that he didn't have a car puts him in this restaurant, and the rest, as they say, is history. So obviously he becomes this amazing figure. It escalates from there, and you describe it in wonderful detail in the book. That's one of the great things about this book, is not only is it an amazing story, but it describes the mechanics of what becomes Batista's betting operation in detail. It's fascinating from both angles. I think gambling audiences will specifically just love how this book goes from both angles. Without giving away every detail of the book, how did Batista finally catch wind of Donahue's shenanigans? Lead us up to that point. Okay, well, I, it won't be giving too much away because the, the bridge between Batista's low-level bookmaking career locally in the suburbs of Philadelphia quickly migrates to a much bigger operation. That restaurant o- owner, whose street name was Louis the Lump, Louis the Lump becomes partners with another major player in the Philadelphia area, a guy many of your followers may know. His name was Mike Rainier. He passed away several years ago. But Mike Rainier was a perfectly legitimate businessman who owned restaurants and supermarkets. Well, he also had a massive bookmaking and betting operation. So when Lump partners with Rainier, he brings over the wait staff from Batista's restaurant. And as I say in the book, for most of the staff at, at this restaurant, this was just a change of scenery. But for Batista, it was a life-altering event because he thought he was a hot shot as a low-level bookmaker. He had no clue how big you could be on the East Coast of the United States, and Mike Rainier was one of the most significant people on the East Coast. And the reason that's important, and it, it really is about timing, and your people who follow gambling are going to know this. If you look back at the late 80s, early 90s, which is roughly the time period I'm discussing, this is right when the Internet comes out, of course. And so when you see Batista's story, you not only see this fascinating rise of, hit, of him within the bookmaking world and the betting world, but you're also, by definition, getting the rise of technology and the way that everything from cell phones, 
you know, the migration from pagers to cell phones changes betting, the way that the Internet changes betting, how information is now traveling so much faster. So that's one of the things I, I found most fascinating about the story. I think it's interesting and funny, Batista and his cast of characters is hysterical if you sit down and interview them. But you also, whether you even, I don't even think people realize how much you're learning as you're hearing them tap into all this technology. Well, getting back to your question about how he winds up with Donaghy, as he rises in Rainier's operation, and he for, they form this subset of a betting syndicate they call the animals, they all had nicknames of animals, they were asked to operate an offshore sports book in Curacao. So you flash forward to 2003, and Batista's now in Curacao. And Tim Donaghy, at that point, is an eight-year NBA referee. Donaghy starts betting on his own games. We know at least going back to the 02-03 season. Well, he didn't know what was happening with his bets. And what I mean by that is he was placing his bets with a good friend of his, a golfing buddy named Jack and Cannon. Jack and Cannon isn't a wise guy. He's not a handicapper. He's just a regular guy. So he, of course, needed somewhere to place Donaghy's bets. He placed them with a friend of his named Pete Ruggieri, who was a professional gambler. Pete Ruggieri was getting on the phone and calling Jimmy Batista in Carousel. And until now, no one had ever understood, well, what was it that piqued Ruggieri's and Batista's interest in Donaghy's games? How did they realize that these were an NBA referee's games? And for the first time, you'll hear what Batista explains. Jack and Cannon historically was betting $2,000 for each NBA game and all of a sudden started betting $5,000 on certain NBA games. Those $5,000 bets were winning at a ridiculous rate. So Ruggieri and Batista immediately said, okay, what the heck is going on? What's the common theme with these 5,000 games? And, of course, it took them two seconds to realize it was games Tim Donaghy was officiating. And they knew that King Cannon and, and Donaghy were good friends, so they just assumed that those two had concocted some sort of scam and for three full NBA seasons, they simply copied the bets that Donaghy was placing on games he was officiating. So, By the way, Tim Donaghy didn't know that until Gaming the Game came out. Till your book came out. He had no idea. He had no idea. He simply knew that he was telling King Cannon. He had no idea how Batista figured all this out until <laughs> now. Even after he actually met Batista? Like he didn't figure it out then? Well, they never discussed it. What winds up happening, when you flash forward to the start of the 06-07 NBA season, by now, Donaghy's been betting on his own games for three years, and Batista's been copying the bets, but never told anybody, of course. As he says in the book, I wasn't stupid. I wasn't going to tell anybody I knew about this. Well, Donaghy starts complaining about Jack and Cannon not paying on betting bets, on betting wins. So he complains to a friend of his named Tony Martino. People who follow the NBA betting scandal will realize he's the third conspirator. Donaghy's a referee, Batista, the pro gambler, and Martino, their friend from high school. So as a result of him complaining about Jack and Cannon not paying on debts, which, by the way, Jack and Cannon to this day adamantly denies ever owing Donaghy a nickel and says that if he said he met, then he's just greedy. Regardless, <laughs> um, Martino sets up a meeting, that infamous meeting, December 12, 2006, at the Philadelphia International Marriott, and it's at that meeting where Donaghy decides to switch from betting with Jack and Cannon to betting with Jimmy Batista, and that's what starts happening on December 13th, when the Sixers are in town to play the Boston Celtics, Donaghy's the refereeing. That's the first game that he officiates that he bets on directly with Batista. And what your listeners will appreciate, that maybe the regular listeners you know, who don't follow gambling won't, the idea that Batista is now getting direct access to Donaghy is not trivial, because he's going to get the picks earlier, which allows him to sure. manipulate betting lines over a longer period of time and increase his, uh, uh, you know, his rate of return. So, 
that was a huge thing for him. Absolutely. And give us an idea of that discrepancy. I know that he bet standard ten to $20,000 on an average NBA game. What was he betting on a Donahue ref game? One to two million. Wow. Wow. So from ten to twenty thousand average to one to two million on a Donahue officiated game. That is and the only amazing. the only reason he didn't bet more was because the market, you know, is not infinite. That was the most he could get down. Sure. Which, again, that's where the gambling audience comes in because folks know how tough it is to get down. In fact, you and I talked about Billy Walters off the air. His big skill set is figuring out a way to get all that money down. Well, that's well, Jimmy Batista, for people who are not familiar with the story or familiar with gaming the game, Batista's expertise was not as a handicap. He's not a sharp better. He simply worked for those people as a mover. And a mover is simply somebody who takes those large bets, whether it's a few hundred thousand, whether it's a million or two, and breaking them into pieces and getting them down all around the world. Of course, it has to be done fairly sufficient, <laughs> sophisticated and very quickly. And as you'll see if you read the book, people will feel, realize that he had outs everywhere, Asia, all throughout Europe, all throughout the offshore, you know, in the particular places, especially Curacao, and he had, he had cruiser runners in Vegas. And he just had, that's, that was his expertise. People sought him out. One of the things that, now I don't mean to sound naive, but I will admit, I was blown away when I interviewed people who we worked with and for Batista and for whom he worked. And if you ask that crowd of people, well, I don't get it, what made Batista so special? Because Batista will tell you, look, I'm not a sharp gambler. I couldn't, I, there's a great line in the book where he says he couldn't get changed in the same closet as the sharp betters that he worked with. And I used to, I saw it ask people, well, well, then what made him so special? And their response was interesting. And I think to regular people, this is going to sound goofy. And it was simply that he was trustworthy. He was diligent. He was hardworking. He paid on losses. And for people in the gambling community, they might be saying, yeah, well, those things are not taken for granted. You know, yeah. that's the thing. He was that guy who was willing. He was always available. You know, I described his operation in detail. And when I first hooked up with him, he still had his phone bag. He was infamous for this phone bag. It was a Crown Royale purple uh, bag that held his 12 cell phones. There were direct lines to each of his clients. He didn't ever want to have to mix up the bets or put somebody on hold. So every person got the direct phone. Wow. This book is filled with little details like this. Just awesome. And you're right. Those are such rare commodities. His trustworthiness in the gambling community. I have so many questions here, Sean. So where do I begin? Let me start with the bigger ones so that I don't forget those later. I want to take this from every perspective. Let's start with the NBA. How did the NBA not know this? In other words, do you buy that the NBA is ignorant enough that they honestly didn't know about Donahue's years of gambling, or do you believe they might have known but feared a PR disaster were simply hoping the story would somehow fade into oblivion, or is that second option giving the NBA far too much credit? I obviously spent a lot of time on this. I spent some time in the book. I spent a ton of time on my website about this. The NBA throughout the 03, 04, 4, and 5, and 5 and 6, six seasons, I can possibly give them a pass about not seeing the obvious. And in case the public's wondering why am I segmenting those three seasons out compared to the 06-07 season, if people read game in the game, there's an appendix. And then the appendix includes betting line data from three major sports books. And the reason I included those, I think there's just been too much mythology about the scandal, in, in no small part due to Donaghy and his ridiculous book and other claims. 
Um, so I wanted to put, put it all out there. If I had access to betting line data or betting records or whatever, I put it in there so that this could all be resolved once and for all. And what you'll see is the betting lines in the 03 to 06 seasons move, but not nearly as radically as they do in 06, 07. And that's for the reason we discussed earlier. Batista is now getting access to those picks a lot, a lot earlier in the day, and the lines get moved throughout the course of a day. So I can excuse the NBA for not seeing the betting lines in those three seasons if that was their way of tracking this. The problem, however, is people may not realize this. Donaghy was almost fired in 2005 for off-the-court behavior, including gambling. And so the NBA actually interviewed people and investigated him for gambling. Jeez. Now, you can obviously question, like, don't forget, like, but think about the irony, Joe. It's dead smack in the middle of him betting on his own games. <laughs> and they miss it. So, so I don't know how serious that investigation was. Obviously, they didn't see this, apparently, you know. And anyway, so you go to 0607, that's where the NBA has got a serious problem. And, I, and the reason I say that is because the betting line data tell you all you need to know. That part of the book is interesting because the sports books managers offshore, they knew about this. They were profiting from it. They were copying the bets. So what Batista said, I asked Batista why he didn't agree to cooperate with the NBA when they were doing their Pedowitz study. People may remember the NBA did a study. It was called the Pedowitz Report after the, the, the uh, author of the study, yeah. Larry Pedowitz, an attorney from New York. Well, I asked Batista why he didn't cooperate with the NBA, and his response was, I didn't believe that they really wanted to know what happened. I, don't, I never believed that they didn't know about what we were doing. They, somebody in the NBA had to have known, especially by 06, 07. How was it that the pro-gambling community knew people yeah. were copying our bets? People in sports books knew they were moving the lines in consideration of the bets. How is it that somebody had to have heard something? It doesn't make sense to me as a gambler. He said that, but he also said something interesting, which was he didn't cooperate with the NBA. He was convinced they would never, ever conclude. They, never, they would never produce a study which concluded the Donaghy Six games because their losses, how would you ever calculate losses in lawsuits? People, you know, franchises that lost lottery picks, people that lost playoff slotting. Yeah. You know, so he, that's why he disagreed with the, what the NBA was doing and didn't cooperate. And so when I stepped back, and it, when you get to that part of the book, I actually walked the reader through what the NBA had access to, what they should have known, and I actually give suggestions at the back end of the book of what they could do to further understand this so it wouldn't happen again. Hope you're enjoying my interview with Sean Patrick Griffin, author of Gaming the Game from 2011. As always, support for today's show comes from bookmaker.eu, an industry leader for close to 30 years. Where the lines originate, because chances are the sportsbook at which you've been betting follows their lines. And right now, once again, if you visit bookmaker.eu slash gill, that's bookmaker.eu slash G-I-L-L, you can claim an exclusive 100% welcome bonus of up to $300. That's bookmaker.eu slash gill to join and claim your welcome bonus of up to $300 right now. And here's what you need to know for March Madness, because they're going to have a couple contests over there, big bracket contests. The first... A 63-team bracket with a $1 million perfect bracket prize. And then 10K to the winner, 5K to second place, $2,500 for third place. And with every completed bracket, getting a prize guaranteed. All players will get one free entry and then can purchase more at $10 each. All the details at bookmaker.eu slash march hyphen madness. Go to bookmaker.eu slash gill. Get your welcome bonus. Then enter the contest at bookmaker.eu 
all the information for the contest at bookmaker.eu slash March hyphen madness. And they're going to have a second chance bracket contest for the Sweet 16 as well. We'll give you all the details as well for that coming up. Bookmaker.eu slash Gil. It is the place to be. Well, all of that is why I asked that question initially, because it is such a curious part of all of this. And you mentioned your appendix, Sean, which to me is really, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't that really the unassailable part of all of this? It really is the smoking gun, because there it is in black and white. This is the data. We can all give our opinions on whatever, but here's the stats. This is, in many right. ways, the key part to everything. Oh, that was, well, that was why I put it as an appendix, by the way. I, I was concerned. Right? I'm, an, I'm an academic by trade, so I didn't want to bore people. But I was so frustrated by, here's the easiest way to say this. There are certain parts of the story that will forever be, Donaghy said this, Martino said that, Batista said this, right? But there are certain things that are irrefutable, and that's why the appendix is there. And if you've got access, as I did, to Batista's betting records, the FBI files that the public has never seen, to the betting line data from the sports books, that was my whole point of doing that, because I, am, I have been so frustrated at the way this has been treated in the media as, oh, well, we'll just never know. No, that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> the numbers don't lie, and there they are. Listen, I'm a numbers guy, and that's why I loved that you included that as well, because to me, there it is once again. If you were up in the air after all that, here's the appendix. Check it out. So follow up to what we were just talking about then. I have a couple follow-up questions, and forgive me, Sean, as I'm just going to say these as I think of them. With the NBA, now that this has all transpired, you know, the scandal has occurred. We're on the other end of it, perhaps. Any indication that they're any more vigilant about this now than prior to the scandal? Because David Stern seems well, they, awfully calm to me. They, they claim that they now are following betting lines, which they never did before. You know, the NFL for years has tracked betting lines, and they've got people with their ear to the ground tracking any weird betting line moves. The NBA never did that. They now claim to not only be following betting lines, but they say that they now have a computer model that is connecting somehow betting line movement with individual level referee call data. Hmm. The, the only reason I, I'm a skeptic with that is they're, of course, not releasing any referee call data. I asked for it when I was doing research for the book because I, I am familiar with a pro gambler who has done that sort of research. He actually seriously tracks NBA referee call data. Sure. And his research showed that Donaghy was off the charts when it came to certain things like illegal calling illegal defenses, which you know very very rarely is done, calling the ball. You know, Donaghy, the, the gamblers always told me that the way Donaghy was fixing games was that he was calling calls that were technically correct but often ignored. And that's why they wouldn't be... You know, view with a you know a CNI because they are technically true calls. <laughs> Before you go on, that detail right there might be the funniest thing about all of this to me because Donahue makes a point, doesn't he, with his wording all the time. Whenever he was on record, he always said, "I was not making incorrect calls to advance my <laughs> bets." You're very good at this. That's exactly right. And so you just mentioned. What he was doing, in essence, if we're to believe the folks you talk to, is he was actually calling basketball correctly, palming illegal defenses. Like, I have this image of Dr. James Naismith with a uh, peach basket under his tweed suit saying, finally, there's a ref who calls this game as I imagined it, and his name is Tim Donahue, of all, of all people in the world. That's amazing to me. Well, I... The only reason, that's, that's actually probably the only data set that I had that I didn't include in the book, and it was only because 
I'm, I was on the verge of getting a much fuller data set, which I'm actually, if it's not going to be in the paperback version, I'll actually just put it up on my website. But the one I, I was also accessed, um, I also accessed another data set, and that is included in the book. You, you can actually track splits of referees. So, for instance, typically a referee will call 10 against one, 10 calls against one team, 8 against another, 15 or 12. It's always fairly down the middle. But Donaghy's games have splits of 14-2, 13-3. I mean, they're ridiculous. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and that's the point. And that's why, I include, I, that's why we said a moment ago, the appendix has all of that. And, you know, let the, I'll let the readers conclude what they may. But, but to me... It's irrefutable what was going on in those games. Yeah, I don't mean to go off on a tangent on that point specifically, but that to me is so funny because it's so damning about the NBA just on a complete aside from this actual story. <laughs> the fact that folks just aren't even calling games and Donahue actually called these games correctly. Anyway, just a side point. But you brought up something else, though, Sean. You mentioned there somewhere in the middle that offshore sports books admit readily about being aware of what was happening and cashed in big time. Sportsbooks in Vegas had to have been complicit as well, right? They're not acknowledging this in Vegas? Well, I only spoke with um, two sportsbooks managers directly uh, in research for the book, and they each, now I must preface this, and your listeners will get a kick out of this. I'll give you one example because it speaks to the bigger problems I have with this project. I, find, I get in touch with one sportsbook manager of a major sportsbook who is always quoted in the media. A very popular guy with the media. Of course, had some rather interesting things to say about the NBA scandal, which is why I contacted him. I explained what I was doing, what my research was showing, and I, of course, had data from the sportsbook. So uh, when I first started talking to him, I said, by the way, I have to compliment you on your sportsbook. I hung out there last summer when I was doing research. This is a couple years ago, and I was... When I was doing research for Game of the Game, I spent time in Vegas hanging out in the sports books with all the runners. And so I said, uh, I hung out with runners in your sports book. Well, he cut me off and said, no, 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 sir, we don't have runners in our sports book. And I said, no, you're not understanding me correctly. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you I was in your sports book with the runners. That was part of the research for my book. And he said, no, no, no. We don't have runners. Runners are illegal out here. And that's, I thought, oh, I know how this interview is going to go. Okay, that's right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I wasn't in your sports book. Okay, I'll convince myself of that. I was not in your sports book with the runners. Uh, uh, go forward, and I tell him what the data show. And I've got access to these betting lines. And he said, well, if the betting lines move that way, we would have noticed. And I said, no, no. Once again, we're going back to this hypothetical. This isn't a hypothetical. I'm giving you the betting lines. And he said, no, no, no. That couldn't have happened. We would have noticed. And I thought, okay, this is a fruitless pursuit here. And, what, and that's why I wrote in the book, the sportsbook managers have a problem because the FBI reached out to people like this guy during their investigation. Now, you're one of these sportsbook managers. You've got one of two options. You either say, yes, we saw those betting lines move, at which point the feds will say, well, didn't it occur to you to tell anybody like us? Right. Or, or they have to say, oh, wow, how did we miss that? Pleading <laughs> right, is not a good good proposition for them. They have to either show they're a part of it or or, or incompetent. Or plead incompetence. Which is why I had yeah. that awkward conversation with the sportsbook manager. So they have not admitted on record yeah, acknowledging what I, what I present in the book. I think 98% of listeners to this pod know exactly who you're speaking about as well, by the way. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you about this quote from Batista, because I'm guessing you have a different opinion of this. Batista says famously in the book here, do I think stuff like this 
involving corrupt officials is going on in other leagues. He says, absolutely, the money involved is too big to ignore. He goes on to say, you have to consider the financial situation for these officials. They're making pennies compared to the athletes. People get jealous. Also, don't forget how much some people like to gamble. Once somebody owes a bookmaker some cash, who knows what they do to pay off their debt. That obviously, Sean, is the big question that folks like to ask, I suppose. The conspiracy theories that we so love to toss around would lend to that conclusion for sure, but... I'm guessing you're not quite as convinced that similar scandals exist in the NBA or in other leagues, are you? No, not at all. I, for one reason, Batista gave that quote, and you know I, I believe him. Don't forget, though, he's a gambler, so he's always he just assumes everyone's hustling all the time. Sure. Um, when I when I hung out with pro gamblers and with the cruiser of runners and all that, I heard all sorts of incredible stories, many of which I believe about inside information being transmitted between all sorts of parties. But what I never heard was evidence of other officials altering game outcomes in any of the four major sports in the United States. And so, as I say over and over, I'm not naive enough to say it can't happen. I'm simply saying that over and over, all I heard was how excited people were when they heard that an NBA official was fixing his games, which is why they copied them. Because it was such an anomaly. They couldn't believe there was an official in one of the four major sports betting on his own games and fixing the outcomes. And so it's, it's just inconceivable that I was living in this world. I spent two and a half years doing the research for this book, traveling all over the place, getting access to all betting records in that entire underworld. I never heard a word of other people involved uh, beyond Donnie, whether it was in the NBA or other, other sports. So, and and I, took, I took particular attention, of course, um, to the NBA scandal from 03 to 07 because it was always alleged that Donnie had partnered with other referees. Everyone knew about Scott Foster and the phone calls and all that. And so I really looked into that to see what evidence there was, if any, of that. And that's another reason those betting records are important, because there's no evidence based on what Batista was betting or on the betting lines that other referees were influencing game outcomes. You don't interview Donahue in this book because Donahue's claims were so fictitious to begin with that there wasn't a point? Would that be a fair characterization? Yeah, they were, I don't even want to call them laughable, I... It's, it's difficult for me to convey to people how wildly, patently, demonstrably false dozens of his key claims are. And that, that's me, by the way. I don't even get into dealing with Donaghy's claims in the book. It just wasn't worth my time for the reader. I actually do have all of that up on my website, though. If people want to go to seanpatrickgriffin.net, Sean, S-E-A-N, Patrick Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N.net, they'll see there's an entire section of the website devoted to the NBA betting scandal. Oh, and this is important, Gil. In addition to the appendix of the book, where I want to resolve a lot of this, I also had a lot of data that wasn't really useful for the book, but that will also help people if they ever really want to understand the NBA betting scandal. So court files, court documents, FBI files, whatever I could put up on the web, I put up on the web, again, because I want all the mythology resolved. And included in that, I have a blow-by-blow section of my assessment of Tim Donaghy's claims. And it has to be, if you print it out, it's probably 15 pages. Sean, I have to tell you, I love this part of your website. I actually did some research on your website for this interview. I'm sure you're going to launch into it, but he obviously claimed insider knowledge in part from officials in locker rooms and that he bet some of his own games and some of the ones he didn't. Could you talk about debunking those specifically? Sure. Well, as I said, we could do this for hours, but I'll give you some easy ones. He says... That, as you just said, he says that his betting success 
was not based on what he was doing on the court, that it was simply based on his access to quote-unquote inside information that he would gather, especially in the locker rooms in the run-up to an event. There's a famous quote where he said he knew he, he knew to pick an hour before a game because of what he was hearing. Well, you can do this a variety of ways. For starters, Batista's betting all day long, way before Donaghy ever gets to an arena. Beyond that, with respect to his claim that, oh, I bet equally on games I didn't officiate, he says in the 06 07 season in particular that he bet on 16 games he officiated and 14 he didn't. Now, that's a key claim because it's his whole point. It wouldn't matter, of course, if he was officiating if inside information really was the reason he was winning. Of course. Well, there were four people, as we discussed earlier, who were privy to this. Donaghy was betting through Tommy Martino, his high school buddy, who was transmitting the information to Jimmy Batista, and this guy, Pete Ruggieri, was copying the bets. Well, what the public never knew until now was Pete Ruggieri and Tommy Martino cooperated with the government independently. So the public has never heard what those two people said. And, of course, no one, before I got, got access to Batista, had ever talked to Batista. Well, what you see is all three people independently, because until now, no one knew, you know, no one knew that Martino had cooperated, including Ruggieri. No one knew what Ruggieri had told the feds, and no one knew what Batista had said. So when you look at their statements, they're all in agreement. There were no bets on games that Donahue wasn't officiating. There was a period in January of 07, and in this everyone's in agreement, where Donahue tried betting on other NBA referee games. But he lasted a few games, they were losers, and Batista said, I don't want those bets any longer. So <laughs> when you look at just the statements of the witnesses, there is no support for his contention that he was betting equally on other referees' games. Beyond that, and again we go to the appendix, you can test this because you can look at Batista's betting records. Well, there is no record of him betting on non-Donaghy games. That's why the ten to $20,000 NBA game thing versus the one to $2 million on Donaghy's games was noteworthy. Beyond that, you can track betting lines. And that's what I do. I break down for the public, okay, here's how betting line moves on Donaghy's games versus everyone else from December of 06 to April of 07 during the key part of that season. His lines are moving four, or five, six points for NBA games. That's unheard of. And the percentage of games that move that much are way more than the rest of the NBA. And there's a reason. The bets are only on Donaghy's games. So that's, that's probably the easiest way to summarize the, the whole issue of whether it was, quote-unquote, inside information. And by the way, this is a special for your, especially for your audience. I don't get into this on general sports radio shows, but your audience will appreciate that. Why, thank you. If people took the time to look at what he calls inside information, you're probably 90% of your audience is privy to quote-unquote inside information. It was, I, think, I think it was lost on Donaghy that pro gamblers and people who simply follow gambling are totally aware oh, yeah. of relationships between certain coaches and certain teams and certain you know, referees and all that. And there were some other specific things, and again, now this is just off the top of my head, Sean, but very widely publicized that he would talk to officials in locker rooms and he knew information from those officials, but... Bets were made hours prior to that, right? So that couldn't have been relevant at all whatsoever. You can listen. Your your audience knows that you can't get two million dollars down on a game. Of course in not. In a fifteen minutes or an hour. Absolutely. And, and that's the key. People never understood. If, if people read game in the game and they get to the appendix, I tried to be methodical about how you can disprove all of this. So whether, as I said earlier, whether it's the betting records, the betting line data, or whatever, and there's a subsection about the sociology of the betting, how Batista was doing the betting. Well, it runs entirely counter to the idea that Donahue's going to call him frantically an hour before a game and get in a call. 
That's not how this is done. <laughs> and there was something else, and forgive me, Sean, I know I'm being scatterbrained about this, but I mean, some of these details were so fascinating and will be fascinating to many. You mention a Donahue mom-dad code that goes oh, yeah. completely counter to believing his story as well. Well, that's what that, you know what? Thank you for reminding me. I, <laughs> this doesn't even require any betting expertise. But, and, and this, I actually, this didn't even require me, but for some reason no one picked up on this. What the three conspirators all told the feds was that there was a code, mom and dad, meaning mom for home, dad for away. The idea was that Donaghy never wanted to be on the phone with Batista, so they would go through Martino. So Donaghy would place his bets with Martino, Martino would tell, tell Batista what the bet was, and they would use this code. And as I explain in the book, never mind all the overwhelming data that I give the public, even if you simply looked at the code, well, if there are six NBA games tonight, and Donaghy calls Martino and says, yeah, Mom, well, what the hell does he know what that means? He, he, it only works if you know what game you're betting, games where Donaghy's games. Right, if he's only giving it once, it has to be a Donaghy game, because there's so many games right. on the schedule, how else would they know? Right, exactly. <laughs> I just, that's tough. There, there are so many ways to do that. And by the way, we're, we're, we're using, I'm talking about the key claims. You know, when Donaghy's book gets into the FBI's investigation. He gets the investigation entirely wrong. He gets how it started wrong. He gets what he said. It's, I, I've, I've always been struck by the fact that he was so ignorant or naive that somebody, whether it was going to be me or somebody else, just, you're not going to be involved in one of the biggest scandals in U.S. sports history, and somebody's not going to take the time to get the files, get the court records, and put together <laughs> the story. I don't know what he was thinking that somebody wasn't going to come along and say, well, whoa. Is that didn't happen, and here's the file. That didn't happen, and here's what the judge says. That didn't happen, and here's what the U.S. attorney says. You say the Bureau of Prisons said this. Well, here's what they told me. I don't, I don't know what he was thinking. Sean, isn't that the funny part about any crime committed that has any way of tracking it where they're like, and I'm going to get away with it? You know, just complete tunnel vision on what they're doing. I'll never get caught doing this. It's so funny. You know what it reminded me of? I, you know, you and I off-air, uh, we we we're talking briefly about how uh, Oprah was involved with Skype. Yes. Well, Oprah was on my mind as I was reading Tim Donaghy's book. And, and some of your audience may remember, Oprah was involved in that massive scandal of a book called A Million Little Pieces, which was written by an author named James Fry. Oh, sure. It was a scandal, it was a scandal of course, for people who don't know. The book was about overcoming addiction. And Oprah made it her Book of the Month Club, which automatically made it a New York Times bestseller. And it was discovered by thesmokinggun.com that James Fry had cooked all of the story involving criminal justice. They had gone to get the court files and realized that his stories that were on the issues that you could check were wildly wrong, if not totally bogus. Well, I have argued over and over again that Tim Donaghy's book is the sports version of James Fry's A Million Little Pieces. That's because great. for anything you can check out, it's totally bogus. That's great. <laughs> Never thought of it that way. By the way, Oprah in her final shows apologized profusely to James Fry for coming down so hard on him. It's very. I, I heard that. I heard that one of her girlfriends had told had asked her, "Who do you think you are? That's right. You know, who, who allowed you to judge another human being? That's right. <laughs> well, by the way, let me tell your audience, I feel perfectly comfortable judging another human being. <laughs> That's right. We have no qualms about that here, Sean. Yeah. None, none whatsoever. <laughs> What's also hilarious about this in the end? I don't know if hilarious is the right word, but it is kind of amusing. That in the end, certainly not the NBA, but even the FBI didn't bring this down, did they? It had nothing to do with their investigation initially. No, no nobody can take credit for this other than a pro gambler. 
We mentioned earlier that pro gambler Pete Ruggieri. Uh, well, what, ha- what winds up happening? Oh, and by the way, this is going to debunk another Don- a key Donaghy claim, which I'll mention at the end of this. So the scandal is going throughout the 0607 season. On March 18, 2007, Jimmy Batista goes into drug rehab. At that point, he sets it up that Pete Ruggieri is now going to work with Donaghy and Martino. Well, the scandal goes on for a handful of games more. And it's Pete Ruggieri, not the NBA, not the FBI. It's Ruggieri who shuts the scheme down because he realizes by this point the betting lines are flying all over the place. The moment they start betting on Donaghy's games, people from all over the world are copying the bets. The word is out. So it's Pete Ruggieri who shuts the scheme down. Now, the reason that's important with respect to Donaghy's claims, just to bring that back again, Donaghy keeps saying, by the way, his story changed when he put out a book. People may not have realized this. What he told the FBI during his negotiations was one thing. What he wrote in his book and has said on the media tour is something wildly and totally different, including this piece where he now says over and over again that he was relieved when Jimmy Batista went in drug rehab because, you know, Jimmy Batista, of course, was the arm of the Gambino crime family forcing him to bet on games. Well, of course, you get access to the FBI files, and, of course, there's no reference whatsoever to organized crime ever. Um, they never, ever, of course, charge Martino or Batista with extortion. And beyond that, the FBI tells us that from February of 07 through April of 07, Donaghy had started betting again with Jack and Cannon and was now betting not only with Batista but with King Cannon. And when Batista goes in drug rehab, he's betting with Ruggieri. So relieved he was that Batista was in drug rehab because he wouldn't have to bet on games any longer. <laughs> and in truth, he was betting the entire time. And in fact, as I quote Tommy Martino in the book, Donaghy complained and begged for one more game when he heard Pete Ruggieri was shutting the scheme down. Didn't Ruggieri finally just stop with Donaghy and Martino because he realized they were just idiots, pretty much? Yes, he, he, he said they were fools, was his word, yes. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, I, I could spend hours talking just about Donaghy's ridiculous claims, but uh, I want to give one to a gambling audience. Think through this for a second. See if this squares with anybody in your audience. Donaghy claims that throughout the 0304, 0405, and 0506 seasons, he was betting on his games for 30 to 40 games a year. Now that, of course, is what he's betting with Jack and Cannon, and he has to pay if he loses. Now in the 0607 season, when he has cut his deal with Jimmy Batista, the deal is he is paid for his wins, but does not have to pay on his losses. Given that set of circumstances, Tim Donaghy, this self-professed gambling addict, does he bet 30 to 40 games? Now he's got this unbelievable deal where he doesn't have to pay on losses. No, Donaghy claims during that season he only bet on 16 games. <laughs> this is ridiculous. So, you know, I, and as I say, I could walk people through those for hours, and that's why I didn't take the time to do it in the book, because I didn't want to humor his nonsense. I, there was a great story to tell, a fascinating story to tell, and I wanted to keep it tight, and the things that are provable, that's why it relies as much as possible on FBI files, F- interviews with FBI agents, U.S. attorneys, officials, uh, the judges' comments, the court record, all the stuff that actually happened. So only Martino, Batista, and Donahue end up serving time, and hordes of pro gamblers everywhere, I imagine, got away unscathed with untold millions in all of this. That's exactly right. I, I actually wound up tracking down, uh, I count seven, who I know profited from this. I'm sure it's many more, but I only can speak with conviction about seven. Wow. Oh, by the way, that, one of the other things your gambling audience will love, though, if you get access to Tommy Martino's FBI interviews, as I did, what do you think happens when this scandal starts, where Tommy Martino becomes the intermediary? 
he immediately calls a buddy of his in Costa Rica who's working at a sports book to give him the picks every day that they come in. <laughs> and, and of course, why wouldn't that? You know, right? Why wouldn't that happen? And that's why it's tough to say how many dozens of people, by the time you get to March or April of the seven, how many people were betting on these games, having no clue what the actual conspiracy was, but they were just watching the lines. I know I would have done it. I would have done the same thing. Of course. Yeah. Well, that's well, that that's why. Going way back in our interview to your question about the NBA, that's why it's it's almost unthinkable yeah. that during the 0607 season, somebody somewhere hadn't heard about this. It's 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 hard to believe. Possible, I suppose, but really hard to believe. So how does Batista, in the end, not end up on a sandy beach somewhere? How does that happen? <laughs> well, that's a matter of controversy, by the way. Batista claims that um, in the months leading up to him going into drug rehab, for the first time in his career, one of the things Batista was proud about was that he never gambled. Ironically, he didn't like gambling, and he knew he wasn't good at it, so he never gambled on his own. He gambled on behalf of other people, but it wasn't his money, and it wasn't his picks. Well, for the first time ever, he actually started gambling in early 07. Now, of course, not only is he gambling on his own, well, he's not a gambler. He doesn't know what he's doing. He starts betting online poker. And here's where something fascinating and really bad happens. Because Batista is managing other people's offshore accounts, they're in his name, but they're on behalf of his clients, of course. So it's really his clients' money he's using. He starts betting big, big poker games online oh. for millions of dollars. Oh. And then, of course, he's high on prescription pills, and it's a game of chance anyway, and he's just clicking away. Well, it's not his money. What could go wrong, Sean? He, he, so he, he washes away millions of dollars. And according to Batista... Uh, he was millions of dollars in debt by the time he went into drug rehab and left the business. Um, and as I say in the book, Batista says that after he went into rehab, he contacted his clients, uh, each of whom excused, uh, excused him of his debts of, uh, of debt for them uh, and wished him well on his recovery. And I, I should tell you that since the book came out, one of them through an intermediary contacted me and said, he may think that I excuse him of the bets. Uh, I'm wishing him well, but I'd like my money back. <laughs> <laughs> that could be news to Batista right there. So he did 15 months in jail. He is not involved in gambling, to the best of your knowledge, anymore? Not only does he say he's not involved, his experience of getting jammed up in the criminal justice system spooked a bunch of people. I'm calling you from the suburbs of Philadelphia, and there are a bunch of people around here who left the business convinced that the FBI was not done their investigation. And, and by the way, I should tell them that they're right. Uh, the feds always viewed Batista as the key to the castle. They were hoping to flip him, not necessarily about the NBA betting scandal, but because they knew he knew how that entire massive offshore banking system worked, and that really is a focus of them still to this day. Gaming the Game. I am a devouring this book. In fact, I can't wait to continue reading. By the way, shout out to my good friend and guest every Wednesday on the podcast, on the betting dork, Vegas Runner, who is a Philly guy, was the first guy who made me aware of the book as well, and he is endlessly fascinated with the book and is familiar with many of the characters in the book from his days in Philly. So big shout out to him. I know that you have seen him promoting your book as well. Yes, no, it's been it's been fantastic. It's always rewarding when people who know the story say that it's accurate. So, last questions then. This is just from me to you. I'm curious about this. What did you find in all of your research, your whole arc through beginning to the completion of this? What did you find most fascinating in your research, or what surprised you the most? Well, your audience will laugh at my answer, but I just didn't grasp how much money was being wagered every day 
especially offshore. It's never been discussed. It's, the, it's never been discussed how that money is brought back. That was one of the things that blew me away. Okay, fine. I can understand that somebody sits at home, clicks the mouse, and places a bed in Curacao. But no one has ever walked somebody through, well, how the heck's all that money come back? And so I was just blown away that there are these suburban gamblers who are regular guys. If people actually sat down as I did with these gamblers, they're not at all what I was expecting. I don't know what other people were expecting. You know, there's a funny line in the book about uh, a friend of theirs going up to Vegas to meet these pro gamblers and expecting to see people who look like they're from Ocean's Eleven or something and he describes <laughs> seeing four fat guys in a, in a room with pizza boxes because they just live in front of those computer screens watching the lines move. And, you know, actually, that's actually a funny story in the book. They were based about a block and a half off of the Strip and literally never went to the Strip. They had no need to go to the Strip. They had runner's crews for that, and they had no time for nightlife. They just worked constantly. So I guess for me that was the thing I found so mind-boggling was that there were so many people who took this that seriously and that they were betting so much damn money. I just had no clue. I was so naive to all that. And uh, I made my, By the way, the reactions of the book are that I'm apparently in the main with that. Most people, other than people who really follow gambling, have been blown away by the idea that there are people betting millions of dollars every day as a business. Oh, I think you're right. I think mainstream-wise, no question about it, that's the prevailing sentiment. And then all of a sudden you do your research and you, and you find something quite different. Yeah. How do you follow this up, Sean? Are you working on another book now? Well, I'm torn on this. I actually, this is going to sound silly, Game in the Game is not a, a light read. It's 300 and some pages, and yet... I had so much material I left out, especially about the real serious mechanics of big-time gambling and the logistics of it. And I've always planned on writing at least an academic paper uh, for an academic journal about that. But I have so much material, I may actually write a book on, on the whole, I don't want to call it sport, but on the whole science, I guess, the art and science of mathematical handicapping. But that's actually part two answer question, to answer your question a moment ago, what I found fascinating. Somebody like me, I'm a sports fan, and I've had, we've all heard people on sports radio for years saying, okay, well, you know, Penn State's playing Ohio State next week. It's at Ohio State, so that's three points for home field event and all that stuff. And until I got into this and really hung out with the sharp gamblers, the whole process of how they are looking at numbers was totally foreign to me. And so I have an entire wealth of information that I could use, and I probably will, if not for a paper, certainly for a book, on real serious high-end sports handicapping. By the way, I shouldn't even say handicapping and mathematical analysis is really what what I'm talking about. Well, I think I speak on behalf of everybody when I say we look very much forward to that one. But before we even get a chance to read that book, anyone who has not gotten a copy of this one, I strongly urge them to do so. Gaming the game. Once again, the story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen. And I don't know that I did enough justice to that gambler who made it happen, the Jimmy Batista portion of that book. But, you know, for as much time as we spend on the NBA betting scandal, the experiences that led to Jimmy Batista becoming Baba or the Sheep, just really fascinating stuff, Sean. And kudos to you. Just a great book, fascinating read. And like I said, I'm kind of addicted to it right now. I'm rushing to read more of it later on today. Give that website one more time for everybody because you've got some great information on there. Sure. It's seanpatrickgriffin.net. Gaming the Game. Once again, the name of the book. Check it out. Sean Patrick Griffin. Sean, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks a lot, Joe. 
You ever get the feeling the city walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating your soul? You crave wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe chase some elk, fish a private stream. Well, listen up. There's a whole world out there, and finding your own piece of it just got easier. Head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, you name it. Search by acreage, location, the kind of hunting or fishing you dream of. Land.com. It's where the adventure begins. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER.